The letters of the Apostle Paul are heavy and strongly worded. They're brawny and potent. You would expect them to be written by a physically impressive person, a mighty man, or a charismatic speaker. That's what you would expect when you read them. But here's what people said about the Apostle Paul, and I'm getting this from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, and in a couple of different versions, the NLT and the message version. But here's what they said about him. This is going to shock you. In person, he's a weakling, and he mumbles when he talks, and his speeches are worthless. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Whoa, that's in the Bible. That's what they said about the Apostle Paul, the writer of most of the letters contained in the New Testament. Paul was not a physically impressive person, nor was he a charismatic speaker. He was not what you expect in person after reading his letters. Not what you expect, okay? But what Paul talked and wrote most about was Jesus. Jesus was also not what you expect from a Messiah. Sure, the Messiah was expected to be a Savior, right? That was always true. The Messiah was expected to be a Savior, but they thought that he would save them from the oppressive rule of Rome. Instead, he was mocked, beaten, and crucified at the hands of Rome. Here's how Jesus was physically described in the Bible. Ready for this? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Here's how the message version puts it. This is a little bit tough, but I'm going to read it for you. He was a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. So Eugene Peterson uh, in in his uh, version of the Bible. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him and thought he was scum. From a human point of view, Jesus was not very impressive either. Not very impressive from a human point of view. Okay, but what about the gospel of Jesus that Paul preached? Come on, Mike. We know the gospel as the power of God for salvation. The gospel of Jesus is described as the power of God for salvation to those who believe. We know it as the good news of what Jesus did for us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin and wrongdoing. A penalty that we should have paid. But the message of the gospel sounded like foolishness to the world. Sounded like foolishness to the world. Here's how Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 25. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For the Jews demand signs. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks, here I'll just push that up there. The Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. Folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Listen to this verse. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God, isn't it interesting how Paul describes this? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel of Jesus was not what they expected. Neither was Jesus nor the Apostle Paul for that matter. From a human point of view, from a human point of view, the gospel seemed foolish, Jesus seemed like nothing, and Paul seemed unimpressive. But the gospel of Jesus changes things. For those who believe, the gospel of Jesus changes everything. Changes everything. And that's the title of this sermon as we look at Paul's letter, 2 Corinthians. Notice I'm not saying his second letter to the Corinthians. I'm calling it 2 Corinthians, and you'll see why in a minute. What I want to do today is I want to briefly lay out the context of the letter. So there's a lot of details, but I'm going to try to do it with some maps so that it makes sense to you. And so, um, so I'm going to lay out the context of the letter. I'm going to very briefly, in a couple sentences, describe why he wrote it. And then I want to look at the key verses that I think address the main point of the letter. My hope is that we will see how the gospel changes everything It changes how we view people, how we view children, how we view ourselves, how we view God, how we view life. It changes our life purpose, actually, and what we live for. My hope is that you and I would no longer see life, people, God, or ourselves from a human point of view, but rather we would see them in light of what God has done and how that changes everything, okay? That's what we're going to do in the next few minutes. But first, let's pray. Lord God, Lord, as we look into uh, this letter, 2 Corinthians, God, I pray that you'd help us to, to just hear you and hear your message to us. Lord, these things that I just read and these things I just talked about are a little shocking in terms of how Paul was described, or how Jesus was described, or even how the gospel was described. But Lord, in the midst of it, help us to see things from your perspective and not from the way the world looks at things. Lord, help us to change. Help us to look into your gospel. Help us to believe your gospel. Help us to love your gospel because the gospel changes everything. Thanks, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first, the context of the letter. 2 Corinthians, 
was written by the Apostle Paul along with Timothy. So if you read the first verse, it says Paul and Timothy to the church of God in Corinth and to all the saints who were in the area around Corinth called Achaia. It was written by Paul on his third missionary journey. Somewhere in Macedonia, Macedonia, he was actually on the move. After he left Ephesus, and he was actually on his way to Corinth when he wrote the letter. If you read the letter carefully, it all comes out. So he wrote the letter in advance, expecting to arrive there soon after writing it. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so you may remember from Acts chapter 18 that Paul first came to Corinth, which is in the blue arrow up there. He first, I've actually been to Corinth. I was there as a, uh, a high school student. I think I was a sophomore in my, uh, at Coney. And we took a trip over to Greece, and I actually stood in Corinth, which is interesting. It's, it's a uh, very interesting city. It's right in that little isthmus between Macedonia and Achaia, and it is one of the most commercially important cities in the Roman Empire because you could, all of commerce came across that isthmus before they had the canal there. I stood at the canal. They didn't have the canal back then. But Corinth was a city like no other. No government, like Rome, it didn't have the pressure of the, of the control of government, although it was under the Roman Empire, but all the commerce. So I think it was like New York City. Everything was happening there. Some things good, some things not so good. Anyway, Corinth. He first came to Corinth on his second missionary journey after sharing the gospel in Macedonia, in the t- towns of Philippi, Thessalon- Thessalonica, Berea, and then down in Athens. In Corinth, when he got down to Corinth at the Blue Arrow, he met and worked with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Remember that couple's name. They, they play a big part in understanding and tracking the letters of Paul and understanding how they happened. And after ministering in Corinth for a year and a half during his second missionary journey, he was joined by Priscilla and Aquila as he went over to Ephesus, the Red Arrow. And he visited Ephesus for the first time at that point on the second missionary journey. And he left Priscilla and Aquila there, left them there. They wanted to stay apparently. Uh, they were originally from Italy, but they were kicked out of Italy along with all the Jews when the, king, when the emperor did it. And it kicked, kicked everyone out. <laughs> anyway, so they went from Rome to Corinth and now to Ephesus. And then Paul finished his journey, and he ended up where he started in uh, Antioch, and that's the purple. So that's the second missionary journey from Antioch all the way around and then back to Antioch. That's the second missionary journey of Paul. Okay, here's the uh, third missionary journey. Before Paul arrived back in Ephesus, you can see at the Purple Arrow where he started off his third missionary journey, and he traveled through the, uh, in, in, the inroads, the inland areas of Asia, ending up at Ephesus where the Red Arrow is. Before he arrived back in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, Priscilla and Aquila met a guy named Apollos. 
And Apollos was a very impressive, polished, charismatic speaker. He was amazing. Everything you'd want in a speaker. He didn't quite get some things about the way of of God. So Priscilla and Aquila actually helped him get clarity on some of the, what they call the ways of God as part, as part of his preaching. And he had already left, and you know where he went? He went over to Corinth after he left Ephesus, and he had already left by the time that Paul made his way back to Ephesus. This little guy, Apollos, came in, and he, and he goes over to, Eph- to uh, Corinth as Paul was getting there. You may remember from Acts 19, so that's, put, put that up in your head for just a second. In, in uh, Acts 19, Paul was, was in Ephesus for two years. Two years. And it was during that time, while he was in Ephesus, that Paul wrote letters to the Corinthians. I say letters to the Corinthians. The first letter, which we don't have is referenced in 1 Corinthians. So he talks about a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. And it's, so the, first, the letter we call 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote, according to 1 Corinthians, if you read it very carefully. And that letter was actually written, the, the 1 Corinthians, the second letter, was written in response to a letter from Corinth to Paul. So there was a letter he wrote, which we don't have. There was a letter that they wrote back to Paul. And 1 Corinthians was in response to that letter. If you read 1 Corinthians very carefully, it all begins to make sense. That's what happened, okay? Not to get it overly complicated. Sometime after writing and sending 1 Corinthians, Paul made what was referred to, what he referred to as a painful visit to Corinth. The painful visit appears to be a brief in and out, probably leaving from and returning to Ephesus during those two years. That visit is not mentioned in the book of Acts. It's not mentioned. I've scoured it. But it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians. As you put it together, you realize he did that. At some point, he did that. (laughs) And after the painful visit, Paul sent a, what he calls in 2 Corinthians a difficult letter to the Corinthians by the hand of Titus. A difficult letter to the... So this painful visit happens. He sends... You read, you read 2 Corinthians. He refers to a difficult letter that he sent them by the hand of Titus. And he said in 2 Corinthians, which he wrote, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, that he had originally planned to leave Ephesus. So see how it goes how his path goes up to Macedonia and down. He had originally planned, he actually tells us this in 2 Corinthians, he had originally planned to go directly to Corinth from Ephesus and then use Corinth as a jumping off point to go up to Macedonia and then come back down to Corinth. That's what he tells us he was originally planning to do. But he really didn't want to have another painful visit in Corinth. So, He altered his plans, going to Corinth by way of Macedonia, which is described up there, and instead of visiting them directly, he wrote that difficult letter, 
which he delivered to Titus by the hand of Titus. Okay, so that's just a little bit of background and context. Okay, so now you can read 2 Corinthians, and, and when you read it, it'll hopefully make more sense. I've read it for decades, and I'm like, okay, which letter, and what's this painful visit, and how does that fit in with all the other things? But as I've pieced it together over the decades, and as I've looked at other uh, scholars, and, and I've actually read it again and again and again, ah, it all begins to make sense. So here, here's, here's a picture of it. Apparently, Titus was supposed to deliver the letter and meet Paul in Troas on Paul's way to Macedonia. See Troas, the, the uh, what is that, green, green arrow? He, Titus was supposed to go over, deliver the letter, and meet Paul back at Troas. But if you look at 2 Corinthians 2.12, here's what Paul says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul was concerned. He was really concerned. Why wasn't Titus there? Why wasn't he at Troas? Had it really gone that badly in Corinth? (laughs) Had it really gone that badly in Corinth? So even though there was an open door for the gospel there, an open door for evangelism in Troas, he couldn't stay. He couldn't stay. Such was the value of Titus, a laborer, and missionary partner for Paul. Open door of evangelism right here, but Titus isn't there. So I have to go. I have to leave and go see what's going on. That is what happened right there, right there. (laughs) So he moved on. And such was his concern for the Corinthian church. That is a value statement there. So he moved on. Sometime... After arriving in Macedonia, so somewhere in around where the golden arrow is there, Titus returned from Corinth, and you can read it all in 2 Corinthians. He actually gives us a play-by-play. Titus returned from Corinth with good news. Good news! (laughs) The Corinthians were grieved by Paul's painful visit and his difficult letter, but it was a godly grief that turned into repentance and a desire to change. Hallelujah. 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 So Paul was greatly comforted by that news. Greatly comforted by that news. And he wrote to express that comfort. If you read 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, the word comfort appears multiple times. And that's why. Because he was greatly comforted by the news that Titus brought him. And why did Paul write it? This is it. This is the second point here in a nutshell. To express comfort to them and to emphasize how the gospel changes everything. And so he was just making this point that in the context of this really difficult thing that's happening in Corinth, the gospel changes everything. See, it's already changed you, Corinthians. Okay. So let's take a look at what I think are the key verses in 2 Corinthians that make this point 
of the gospel changing everything. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the verses, uh, these key verses, and I'm going to stop and comment on them as we go. Okay, so here's the first one. Oops. Ah, okay. The first one is 2 Corinthians 5.12. Just take some water for a second. We are not commending ourselves to you again. So he's had several letters to them. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. Outward appearance, flashiness, charisma, strength, polish. In view of what some folks in Corinth thought of Paul, which I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, in view of that, Paul is contrasting a person's outward appearance with what's in the heart. His statement, do you remember this? His statement was very much like what God told Samuel Remember from the Old Testament when Samuel thought that David's older brother, Eliab, would make a pretty good king. Now there's king. There's a king right there. Tall guy, handsome. There's a king. God said this to him. Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I wonder if the Apostle Paul was actually thinking about that verse when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul explained later in the next couple of verses what he meant with the example of whether he and his team were insane. (laughs) It's interesting. As you read this, you're like, what? Where does that come from? Almost as if to say, from the outward appearance, you guys might think we're crazy. We're not in our right mind. That's what he says there. Well, if sometimes we seem to be insane, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you, he says. You see, we are crazy for God. We owe him our very lives, and we carry his gospel message, which is embedded in an upside-down value system, which doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't. So we seem to be out of our minds sometimes. But for your sake, we try to explain it in a way that makes sense so that it can be understood. And why is this also? Why why is this whole thing the way it is? He says it in the next verse. For the love of Christ. It's all about the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There you go. The love of Christ compels us. The ultimate explanation of what might seem to be crazy, the explanation is found in what some people call the paradox of the cross. Because the gospel changes everything. It comes down to the love of Christ, which he demonstrated for us on the cross. This love changed everything for Paul. He said that the love of Christ controls us, 
or compels us. Why? Why? Because one has died for all, therefore all have died. Wow, unpack that for us, Mike. The death of Christ for, us, for all of us implied that everyone needed the atoning death because of our sins. The atoning death of Christ. That's you and me. Every one of us needed or needs the atoning death of Christ because of our sins. We all need the atoning death of Christ because of our sin. And without it, all have died. Or could I say that without it, we would all be dead in our sins. So that's the condition. Because Christ died for all, all have died. And there's probably a few more uh, implications of that that you could unpack if you think about it enough. But the implications of Christ dying for all meant that all have died in view of that. And not only that, but those who found life in Christ, those who found life in Christ, they might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is what might look crazy. This is what might look crazy. When Christians choose to suffer and sometimes die in martyrdom for the name of Christ over the pleasures of this world, that looks crazy. And it did. You see, the love of Christ is compelling. The gospel changes everything. From now on, therefore, we regard no one, no one, from the, according to the flesh or from the NLT from a, that uh, Holly read, from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ that way, we do so no longer. We don't see people from a human point of view anymore because of what Christ did on the cross. We don't view Christ from a human point of view. We look to the heart. We view people, God, in the context of the death and resurrection of Christ. We view them according, we view people according to their spiritual condition and the state of their everlasting soul. Take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9 sometime. The state of their everlasting soul. I won't go there. We view them in the light of eternity in their relationship with God as reconciled or unreconciled. And we urge them, no matter who they are or what they appear to be or what they've done, we urge them to be reconciled to God. Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is the point, he is a new creation or there's new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new creation. The new has come. In this letter, we begin to see, and this was so revolutionary for me, in the last couple of weeks as I began to unpack, because we're doing this, this sermon series in chronological order of when the letters were written. So the first one that was written by Paul that we have is 1 Thessalonians followed by 2 Thessalonians. 
And then the next letter in chronological order as we go through is 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. And then we're going to go on to Galatians and then Romans. And those are in the order. And as we do that in the order, all of a sudden I begin to realize how God is making these themes understood by Paul and he's explaining them with greater and greater depth. It's fascinating. I've never done this before. So I'm just having a blast, as you can probably tell. The suffering, so, so what he's doing is he's looking at this radical sense to which the gospel of Jesus changes us, changes everything. The suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ makes all the difference in how we view Jesus, ourselves, and everyone else. The same themes that are illustrated for us in that baptismal tank right there. Death and burial with Christ as we go into the water and resurrection with Christ as we come out. That's the symbol of baptism. In this letter, he asserts that if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. And this is not a new idea. It wasn't Paul's invention. It's rooted in the teachings of Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember that? That we are born again in Christ, rebirthed. And that this rebirth is connected to the sacrificial death of Jesus. You've been at the football games when there's a, a field goal and the guy holds up John 3.16. John 3 is what we... What Jesus was talking about born again. It's connected to the death and resurrection of Christ. And after writing the letter to the Corinthians, look at it chronologically, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans while he was at Corinth and reinforced the same idea of being united with him in his death and burial, but used a new term in Romans called the old self. So read it. Talks about the old self being crucified and walking in newness of life. That's in Romans 6. And around the same time, he wrote the letter to the Galatians, which we're going to be studying next, next week, where he reiterated the theme by saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's in Galatians. That's the next one he writes after Romans. Oh my. Finally, a few years later, after being imprisoned for years, he wrote letters while he was in prison in Rome to the Ephesians and the Colossians. By now, he explained the transformative nature of new creation in very practical terms. He said, we are created in Christ Jesus Created, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. And we put off the old self and we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You want a definition of discipleship? A definition of what it means to be a disciple of Christ? When a disciple is fully taught, they are like their teacher. When a disciple is fully taught, they are like Jesus. That is the objective of disciple-making, 
to be like Jesus. <laughs> so this whole new life that we're in is, is the idea of being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians that he does. That's one of the last letters before he gets to First and Second Timothy and Titus. Okay. God used Paul's experience with the Corinthian church to begin explaining how the gospel changes everything. It changes how we view God, ourselves, and everything else. The change is as radical as life and death, as birth and burial. (laughs) That's the change. That's how radical the change is. Truly recreating us in the image of God, an image that is freed from enslavement of sin by the redeeming work of Christ. And we carry this transformative image, this reflection of God, can I say, this treasure in jars of clay, which he writes in 2 Corinthians. We carry this treasure, unimpressive as we sometimes are, I'll say as I sometimes am, this life of God in the soul of man. (laughs) This life of God in the soul of man. And as renewed image bearers, we become ambassadors for Christ. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God took the initiative to reconcile the world to himself. God didn't need to change, but we did. But God initiated it. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Can I say that again? Just to make sure we get that. Not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. I just want to make sure that we hear that one. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He's writing this to the Corinthians in his fourth letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. Be reconciled to God, Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you want a one-verse gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.21, one verse. Memorize it. I remember being up at Orno when we first started ministry there, Back in 2000, we restarted it back in 2005 or six, and I'm driving down the road, and I've got a, a car full of my old fraternity brothers that are that actually they're young, and I'm taking them out to eat, and we're coming back from dinner, and I'm driving through Orono, and it's raining, and I can barely see. And I'm trying to focus, and I'm sharing this verse with a guy in the back seat, and I said, "Yeah, so the Bible says for our sake He made Him Jesus to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this guy in the back seat, I wish I could have turned around and seen his face. He looks at me and says, really? What? 
What did you say? That's, that's the gospel? I said, yeah. Jesus became sin for you so that you get to become the righteousness of God. That is the paradox of the cross. That is what changes everything. <laughs> that is the one-verse gospel. And we have now been entrusted with the, mess, the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation with God. It's a message from God that He has adjusted the difference. If you pay attention to the news, whenever they do a budget in the Congress, they call it a process. You remember what process they call it? Reconciliation process. It's when you compare two things. It's like balancing your budget. Remember in the old days you used to balance your budget? You balance your checkbook? Sorry, I shouldn't say it that way. Hopefully, well, anyway. <clears throat> it's when you do the, that comparison and you realize there's a difference and you reconcile the two things. So there's no difference. You adjust the difference financially. God has adjusted the difference between us by not counting our trespasses against us. That's what it says in the context. Oh my heavens. And how did he do that? By just sweeping our trespasses under the rug and ignoring them? Is that what he did? No. God's justice would never allow that. They needed to be paid for. And they were. Yes, for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin. Although he had never sinned, he bore our sin on the cross so that we get to be the righteousness of God. Not just any righteousness, the righteousness of God. His death and resurrection justified us before God and brought us into a reconciled relationship with Him. Okay, and here's the final verse. I had to throw this in, even though it's in the next chapter. It says, Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Wait a second. What is that one talking about? What do you mean, Mike? To receive the grace of God in vain? How can anyone receive the grace of God, this grace of being reconciled? How can we receive it in vain? Well, look at the context of the sixth chapter. I would say it, it's like being in a relationship with someone that has finally been reconciled. After a lot of hours of work, a lot of difficulty, you're finally in a reconciled relationship with this person. You've buried the hatchet, you're reconciled. And yet, you now don't live out that reconciled relationship. It's almost as if you forgot all the work that went into getting you reconciled, and you go on and you live in a different way, maybe with somebody else, after you've already been reconciled. That, I think, is what it would mean to, do, to be, receive this grace in vain. No, we are reconciled with God so that we can have relationship with Him. Connected. That's what Jesus meant when He talked about abiding in Christ. We stay with Him. We are in Christ and we stay there. Remain in Christ. Be in Christ and remain there. Be in Christ and abide there. That's what he means. This gospel of Jesus is not just something we believe and say a prayer when we come to Christ. 
It is that, but it's more than that. The gospel has the power to save us. It has the power to change everything. The gospel was meant to change us, to transform us into the image of Christ, to give us a reconciled relationship with God, to change how we view God, how we view everyone else, and especially how we view ourselves, how we view ourselves, that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for God as his ambassadors entrusted with the message and the ministry of reconciliation. That's how we are then to live for him. You may not be a physically impressive person. I don't consider myself to be a physically impressive person. You may not be a charismatic speaker. I don't consider myself to be a charismatic speaker. Yeah, I'm dramatic, but that runs in the family. You may not be charismatic like Apollos was. You may look a lot like a jar of clay, actually, (laughs) compared to the china dishes. (laughs) You may look more like a plastic cup than a fancy wine glass in Christ. (laughs) But it's the treasure of Christ that makes the difference. It's the gospel of Jesus that changes everything. So, would you believe in the gospel of Jesus today? Would you believe in the gospel of Jesus today? That Jesus became sin for you so that you become the righteousness of God. Would you take that one by faith? That he did it on the cross and if you say, yes, I want that, it's yours. Will you live out the reconciled relationship that Jesus made possible for you? That it wouldn't be in vain that you would abide with Christ? Would you allow the paradox of the cross to change the way you view God, the way you view other people, and even the way you look in the mirror? Will you see people in the light of eternity looking to the heart, not to the outward appearance? Will you be an ambassador for Christ who lives not only for themselves, but for Jesus. Will you say to the Lord this? Will you say this to the Lord of the universe? No matter what, from now on, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'll do it. I remember at a conference as a student when I was in my spring of my sophomore year, it was actually after a bunch of messages on John 15, Abiding in Christ. I woke up that next morning And I went down to the lake, and I remember sitting there, and I said, Lord, I am through fighting. I'm through fighting and deciding on each given issue. I said, from now on, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'm yours from now on. Just make sure that it's, I just want it to be clear as you lead me what that is. But if you make it clear that this is something you want me to do, I'll do it. No more arguing. And that was what it meant for me to make Jesus Christ my Lord, my owner. That was the Lordship of Christ in my life. That we live not only to ourselves, but to Him. (laughs) Will you follow Christ for the rest of your life 
and live out this gospel paradox because the gospel changes everything. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, help us to believe in the gospel of Jesus today. We believe that Jesus became sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. We believe that in Christ, you did not and will not count our trespasses against us, but that we are reconciled to you. Help us not to receive this grace in vain, but to live out this reconciled relationship with you, abiding with you. And finally, help us to view others and ourselves from a gospel perspective rather than from a human perspective. Change us, Lord, to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.